Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. breaks out the book of discipline, it's a bad thing. I know that. But today, I actually want to share with you that uh, in addition to being a book about our polity, how we organize this denomination, which is the second largest in the world, but also how we believe and uh, what our doctrine and our theology is, that in the very beginning, it is quite impressive that we don't begin with a statement of faith, but instead we begin with a brief history of the United Methodist Church. Now, I will preface that because I, to be completely transparent about it, it this is preceded by a list of every bishop who's ever been in existence. Um, I guess if, if you make it to be a bishop, then you should actually be included in part of this. But um, anyway, uh, we're going to start with the actual writing part, away from the lists. The writing part talks about not only our ecclesiastical heritage, that we are part of the entire family of Christianity that actually predates any denomination, but that specifically we trace our origins back to a time far beyond anything that we could have ever fathomed sitting here. If we go back to our beginning, what we find is that we come from an entirely different denomination as far as how it is ordered. We have a lot that is in common as far as our faith, for we share 25 articles of faith with our parent denomination, the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church. But that our beginning was not to start a new religion. It was not to start a new denomination within Christianity. Its, its beginnings was not with the intention of leaving Anglicanism at all. That what actually happened is that there were some people, in some ways a lot like you and I, in other ways not like you and I, but they were Christians who were trying to figure out this Jesus thing. What do we do with our faith? It's one thing to be a Christian as a believer. Christians believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in the salvation of the cross. They believe in the love of God. They believe that grace can bring them not only pardon and forgiveness, but can set them free to try to be better. Then there are disciples. Disciples are Christians, those who believe in Jesus Christ, that are trying to follow in his footsteps, that are trying to implement his lessons and his teachings, and that continue to listen to his words, not only in the reading of scripture, but in the preaching and exposition of it, but also in the movement of the Holy Spirit, so that we can truly be better than we ever were before. And hence, in the United Methodist tradition, that is why we have the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, that we might have those moments where we can feel God strengthening us and giving us the ability to achieve even a footstep toward that goal. And in the beginning of our story are two siblings, actual siblings, not just siblings in Christ, but two actual siblings under the household name of Wesley. And you might be familiar with John and Charles. In fact, a lot of Methodist churches talk about one or the other or both. They had different gifts. They were one of 19 each. So there were 19 siblings. And these two 
probably were just as beloved and just as special in their parents' eyes as their siblings. They were also known as PKs, pastor's kids. Their father was an Anglican rector. And so their mother, God love her, spent most of her time raising the nine that lived past infancy and teaching them diligently. Because Samuel and Susanna believed that by the time they could walk and talk, their children should start to learn, read, and write in Latin and Greek. So they taught them at home how to do this. And Susanna liked to take times right about midday and then before bed to quiz her children to see if they were learning the New Testament and to ask them about their prayer life and to encourage them. And she laid a strong foundation for John and Charles. This idea of introspection. How am I doing as a Christian today? How am I in learning God's word, understanding it, and applying it in my life? How am I doing today? The Methodist terms that have come down through the ages, something that John used to ask and this, this small group of Methodists in the beginning used to ask each other is, how is it with your soul? How is it with you? Well, John and Charles did not stay under Susanna's tutelage their entire lives. At some point, they actually exited her household into formal education. And right about the time they were at Oxford, John was born in 1703. And just about three or four years later, Charles was born. So they, were, they had a little bit of overlap when they were at Oxford University together in England. And there, it became entirely on them to be good Christians. How do you be a good Christian when mom isn't constantly driving that carriage? How do you do that? And fortunately for them, they had such a strong foundation and a good background in that, that they were asking that. Mom isn't here. How do we get better? <laughs> How do we do this? And they were there to become clergy. They themselves would both become Anglican priests. How do you do this? And then they realized something. You know, one of the ways that we did this back at home was that it wasn't just us. There were nine of us, right? You're not just by yourself. There's others there. And so they thought maybe others can help us. They actually wanted to be better Anglicans. They wanted to be better members of the Church of England. They didn't want to go be something else. They weren't like, I've had enough of this and I've decided to come be Puritans. That's not what they wanted. They wanted to be the best Anglicans that they could be. And in order to do that, they realized we can't do this alone. And I can't even do it with just you. We need to find other people. And so when they put out an all call to the campus, you can imagine that they were beating down the doors to figure out how to be more pious, faithful Christians. But a small group heard the invitation and it resonated with them. A small group. And what they did was they decided, you know, if we're going to do this and we're going to be committed to it and to each other, then we need to have some kind of formal way of making sure that we stay together. And so they developed a little group. It was called the Holy Group. And they started meeting regularly, not just to worship on Sunday, but to meet during the week. And during the week, they would read the Bible together. They would pray together. They would pray for each other. And they would hold each other accountable which is the hardest part of living in community, holding each other accountable. Not that there aren't people who aren't looking forward to holding you accountable, but that it's a mutual thing. You have to receive that feedback and you have to be willing to offer it to others, including yourself. And then you have to figure out together, how do we grow and move forward? And John and Charles were committed to that ideal. 
growing and becoming better. And they found a few others. One of them is George Whitfield. Now, George was going to have his own fame on a different side of the family tree because eventually what happens, even in Protestantism, is that there's a theological doctrine that kind of separates us on one side of the aisle or the other. And what ends up happening is that John and Charles as Anglicans are staunch Arminians. Not Armenian, that's a different thing. They are Arminians. They believe in free will. They believe that God has given us an incredible gift. And that gift is that we can choose to accept God's grace for ourselves or not. That we can choose whether or not we want to accept the forgiveness that Christ bore for us upon the cross or not. That we have that power and autonomy. And if you've ever had power and autonomy for the first time, you recognize what a wonderful thing that is. What do you want to do? We just got back from a family vacation, and on that vacation, I don't worry about what my kid eats. There's a whole ship that's willing to feed my kid. And do you know what he ate for the first two days? Ice cream. That's what he ate for the first two days. He wasn't feeling so good by day three. And instead of going, ha ha, I told you so, we stopped and I said, how do you think we got to this point where you're not feeling so great? What have you been eating? And he said, you know, I've been eating ice cream. And I said, okay, well, maybe today we pause on the ice cream and we try to eat something else because you know they will make you pizza 24 hours a day on the ship. They will make you pasta. They will make you the things that you like and you can ask for them and they will have them and they will they'll bring them to the room. You can have that. I would, you know, add in some diversity in your dairy diet. And so he agreed to do that. And he, what he found out was that, yes, you know, you can, you can incorporate things and you can have the power. But at first, he was so overtaken with the power of multiple ice cream machines that work 24 hours a day that he just wanted to overload on that. But then eventually he realized, maybe this is not the path forward for me, right? you got to put away that. And so then he started to embrace more, you know, let's figure out what is going to work for me long term. And so he started to do that. Now, he still had ice cream every day, multiple times a day. But he also ate something more substantiated. And so because of that, we all got along better after day three. His sugar level came down. He was much more able to enjoy the life of the ship. But the same thing happens when you realize you have power, right? Sometimes you just kind of go overboard with it. Like, oh my gosh, I can do whatever I want. Well, sure, you can. That's one of the wonderful things about being created in the likeness of God, as the author of Ephesians says. That's one of the wonderful things about being given that autonomy, that free will that we celebrate in this side of the family tree. It's the ability to enact your will, but it also means there are consequences for that. We are now held accountable for the decisions that we make and the ones that we don't. On the other side of the tree, George Whitfield finds himself staunchly at home with those that we call predestinationalists. These are those who are much more formally rooted in Calvinism and the Reformed tradition of the church. And they have that predestinationalism slant, which means that they believe that the sovereignty of God is what is really driving our understanding of our limited ability to make choice. That ultimately we cannot make choices that will subvert God's will, power, and sovereignty. And so they believe that God has some overarching power there. It's not quite easily compatible with the free will side. But before John and George hit the point where they could no longer walk together in that theological spectrum, they decided to try to work in here. 
Let's work on ourselves before we try to figure out how to fix everybody else. Let's work there. And so George and John and Charles and several others would gather every week. And others started to notice this. And as is normal in history and in humanity, they didn't immediately go, wow, that's really smart. And I appreciate the effort you're making on fixing yourself. That is not what people said. Instead, they started finding ways to make fun of them. Right? Oh, look at these people. They tried every little snarky name they could. They tried sacramentalists. You know, they're just obsessed with the sacraments. All they do is take communion together. It's ridiculous. Or they tried other little names. The one that stuck, though, was Methodist. They are so methodical. They gather every week at this time, and they do this every single time. And this little group of them are so weird because they just keep doing this week after week after week. And John and Charles and the others, they said, you know what? Call us what you will. It's fine. We'll even lean into that name. We'll claim it. We'll redeem it for ourselves. Methodist. But the early Methodists were Anglicans. They were not anything else. They were not anything different. Just like all of the early apostles were Jewish. They weren't Christians till later. They were Jewish. And so here they have this. But what John started to discover and articulate in his preaching and his writings, the same thing that Charles will start to articulate in his writings and his songs, he is an incredible hymnologist. He wrote more hymns for us than we would ever know. And in fact, recently I was in a Catholic church and just out of morbid pastoral curiosity, I picked up their hymnal and I flipped it over in there and sure enough, there in the Catholic church is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I was like, Charles is here. I was like, I wonder if they recognize. And there's good Methodist theology in there too. So, you know, we can permeate the world with our gifts as well. And so Charles started to focus on his music, and John was focusing on his preaching. And uh, this is not a holy book, but it's one that, um, this is actually my third copy. I've run through the other ones. This is a selection of John Wesley's sermons. There's only two in here. No, I'm just kidding. There's more than two. Uh, But he uh, was a prolific writer. He definitely wrote more than he sung, and he ended up preaching a sermon in 1760 called The New Birth, and it sums up for us why Methodism was important in the beginning. Before it became a stream in the family of Christianity, why was Methodism important? And John was tackling this concept of a new birth. Now, John and Charles and almost everybody else in England and and in the known Christian world at the time, Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism were the two dominant forms of Christianity, and both of them practice infant baptism. So almost everybody in Christendom had been baptized as an infant, which means that they probably don't even remember the experience, much less the transformation that happens upon baptism. And so John started to talk about this new birth. You needed to be reborn not externally, but internally. He started to talk about this regeneration. That's why we go on vacation. We need to be rejuvenated. We need to rest, and we need to be rekindled and refired. And so John started to find ways to articulate this. It is the fundamental nature that he describes here in rebirth. He says that there is a difference between the doctrine of justification that happens in baptism and what new birth does. The former relating to the great work which God does for us, forgiving our sins. But the latter, the new birth, is the great work which God does in us, in renewing our fallen nature. 
The baptism was an outward and tangible, visible sign of God's grace falling over you and literally clothing you in Christ is the, is the liturgy that we use. But the new birth was something that would happen at a time between your choosing and God's, a time when you leaned in and embraced it and a time when God fully allowed it to emerge, this new birth that would happen, that would allow you to really discover that you could be transformed. Because even though I'm sure there were plenty of little kids that it clicked with them when they learned about their baptism, still, even this day, as someone who was baptized as an infant and has no recollection of it, it is comforting to know that I didn't miss out on that regeneration, that I can still have those moments. And as Christians, we have them occasionally. Sometimes it's a high holy worship service like Christmas or Easter. Sometimes it's what some call a mountaintop experience. It's one of those moments in our life and in our Christian journey where we have what John Wesley called assurance, that moment where you knew that you were a beloved child of God and you knew that you were saved by the cross and you were confident that not only did God know you, but God loves you and those moments make you feel invincible. And then they leave. And John and Charles and the early Methodists were like, if we can find those moments in our lives and recognize them and celebrate them, then we can try to stay within the perimeter of that. We can find those experiences and then try to live our lives circumnavigating the things that got us to that pinnacle moment. How can we continue to stay there? If you think about it like those mountaintop experiences, those moments of assurance, like a bright burning fire, and you can't stay in the fire because you will be consumed, but if you come back a little bit, you're trying to find that nice place where you can still bask in the warmth but not be too cold. And that is what John and Charles were trying to do. They were trying to develop patterns of behavior, spiritual disciplines that would allow them to stay around those experiences that warmed their hearts. And as they did that, they discovered that sometimes you have to do something radical and different. It doesn't mean that you can't still be who you were. They were never going to stop being Anglican priests. But it meant that they had to find new ways of doing things to help other people experience what they were experiencing and learn the things that they had learned. They didn't want to become better Christians just so that they could be themselves in isolation. They wanted to be better Christians because they believed that Christendom should be blessing everyone that everyone should benefit from your regeneration, your new birth. And so as they were beginning to articulate and practice this, it meant that John found himself doing things that he would never have done. George was like, you know, if you can't preach in the Oxford Chapel about some of this stuff because it's too new and radical, why don't you try outside? And John was like, outside? I can't preach outside. We don't preach outside. Jesus never preached outside. Can't do that at all. But George said, try it, John. And so he did. He preached on a box in the middle of a field. He preached from a window. He preached where he needed to preach. And then finally, when Oxford said, enough of this, you've gotten a little wonky. We don't know what you're talking about. Why are you trying to encourage people to do some of these things? Because you know what happens when you encourage people to live fully into their baptism, fully into God's grace, they can go a little wild. And so they, the church tried to clamp down on John. And so John was like, well, if I can't preach here, I will preach there. And so he did. And Charles said, you know, it's not really preaching that works for me, so I will write hymns. 
In fact, he wrote the seminal hymn for Methodists. It is the first one that is listed in our hymnal, even though it's technically number 57. It is the first hymn in our hymnal, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, My Great Redeemer's Praise. He wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns, and he gave people the words. John's words are absolutely fabulous, and if you have a few hours, I would encourage you to read that one sermon because it's dense, it's heavy, and it's hard to get through. But John, he has his place. But Charles, every Christmas, I'm waiting for us to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Because every Christmas when we sing it, that theology is on point. It is perfect. And you have the words. You have the ability. You not only have the words, but you have a tune to sing it to. And that is one of the ways in which Charles has equipped us to sing our faith. We are Methodists. We are known to sing our faith. That's one of the things that is key about Methodists. When we first had our in-person worship after the isolation of the pandemic and we came back in person, one of the moratoriums we still had in place was that we weren't allowed to sing because at the time we were sure that the droplets that happened from singing could actually ramp up infection and we didn't want to do that. We certainly didn't want to make people sick. So we were told that we couldn't sing. And then when I would tell people in our church, we're going to have worship but we can't sing, they would be like, then how is that worship? And I feel you. Because there is something about singing the songs of our people. There is something about putting our faith to verse and music that enlivens a space. And so not having that gift feels like we've truncated ourselves. And because we have been so richly blessed by so many incredible Methodist hymn writers, Charles being just one of them, it seems very silly for us not to be able to engage in that incredible form of worship. Fortunately, we are at a place where we can sing once more. And so we are able to sing our faith and to give our faith this kind of form that happens musically, that empowers us. And if you start talking to Christians long enough, sometimes they start to slip hymn phrases in there, right? You start to listen. You, get, you start talking to somebody and they're like, I was lost, but now I'm found. Were you blind, but now you see? Right? You start to like, you hear the, you hear the words coming to them. That's why the, the music is so important. That's why Charles, because of the inspiration of his small group, was able to find the words and they would help them. In fact, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is not supposed to be Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Herald angels don't sing, they speak. Gabriel is a herald angel. He speaks to Mary, right? He speaks. And so it technically is not correct that it should be herald angels. In fact, Charles had it correct. He said it's Welkin angels. Welkin angels sing. That's a choir of angels, and they sing. And George Whitfield, God love him, goes, Charles, nobody is going to sing Welkin. <laughs> nobody. You're going to have to fix that. And Charles went, but it's accurate. It's correct. And George was like, it doesn't matter. It's not singable. And if you've ever been a Methodist and you've ever been in one of those church services where you sing a new song that nobody knows, you're like, this is not even singable. It's in the hymnal, not singable. You know. And so that's what happened. George helped Charles to rewrite the words. And the world, including the Catholic Church, now has Hark the Herald Angels Sing. A small group experience gave that gift to us. 
to us. We are predated in Methodism by people and groups of Christians and by experiences long before Methodism ever became its own denomination. We were a part of something that was happening in Europe, especially in England, called the Holiness Movement. People were saying to themselves the same thing in different places simultaneously, I would call this the movement of the Holy Spirit, where they were saying, you know, maybe there's something more than Sunday morning. There's something more than Sunday morning? You mean we could gather on Mondays and feed the hungry? You mean we could study scripture together in the evenings on Thursdays? You mean we could actually be here and teach children early concepts of socialization and grace Monday through Friday? Yes. But we know that is true because some very brave Anglicans chose to model it and try it. And if you want to know how we became a denomination, then you'll have to tune in next week. And I will tell you. But one of the other glorious things about our book of discipline, and I will admit I'm biased, but one of the other glorious things about it is that what I am telling you is here recorded. Because Methodists a long time ago figured out that part of what makes us really great isn't just our unique articulation of God's grace. It's not just that. But that we are a people who are willing to try things. But more than try, we are willing to fail. We are willing to fail if we can learn. We are willing to fail if it means that we can grow and we can do better next time. So in studying our history and as I said, I am so grateful to be in a church that it wants to learn and, and gather new knowledge. To me, it's exciting. It forces me to do the same. And for us, in order to grow, it means that we have to know who we were. Where did we come from? We have to know what worked in the beginning. We have to know what didn't work so that we don't repeat the same mistake. But maybe we look and go, maybe that wasn't the right time. Or maybe there's a tweak or a nuance that we could do now. Things that didn't work in the past can work now. When they ordained the first United Methodist clergywoman in 1968, they were finally doing what John Wesley himself did in the 1700s. He licensed a woman to preach. He did not ordain her but he licensed her to preach. And when the time was right and people could now see John's vision, they started ordaining women. And that is now part of our tradition as well. Learning our history means equipping us to take the next steps. Because Methodists have done a lot of things right over the years. We've done a lot of things wrong. We'll talk about those in the next few weeks. But we have done some things right. But at the end of the day, every single person who calls themselves Wesleyan or Methodist, especially United Methodist, every single one of us traces ourselves back to a group of mocked outcasts in a small room in Oxford, England. And every one of those small outcasts trace themselves back to a group of outcasts in a small upper room. We have a rich tradition 
of taking something that no one sees value in and making it thrive. That is the fundamental history of Methodism. And so Methodism is for the bold. It is for the creative. It is for those who see a problem and want to address it. It is for those who say, yes, God loves me. Yes, I have God's grace, but I need to share that with others. I need to be reborn so that everything that comes out of me, every word, every interaction, every greeting, every act of kindness, compassion, mercy, and love, all of them reflect God's goodness and grace. That is who we are. But that was not who we always were. We have come a long way to today. And I feel very confident that if John Wesley were here, he would say we still have a long way to go. And by God's grace, we will. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.